Well, hello and welcome back to From the Archives after our little half-term break. I hope that the week off has served you well, that you're raring to go in your home groups and your Bible studies, continuing to look at the letter James wrote the early church. This week, a treat again, Matt Bounds is back, he's in chapter 3, speaking about the power and the importance of speech. So I'm going to hand over to him and let him take us through James chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. God bless you all. I was, I was wondering as I was uh, listening then whether there's a similar thing in an Icelandic idiom or not. But uh, most of us in this room will know the phrase. We've grown up with it, probably been taught it by our parents. I know I was. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Sticks and stones might break my bones, but words can never hurt me. I wonder, do you, th- do you think that's true? I don't think it is, is it? I mean, I know why my mum taught me that. It's because if my, my mates in the street are making fun of me and giving me a bit of a hard time, look, it's not the end of the world. It's not like having a knife in your ribs. Uh, there are worse things. And, and to a degree, that's true. But I think most of us, if not all of us, can think of things that have been said to us um, and they've stayed with us. Maybe things that were said weeks or months ago, or maybe things that were said decades ago, and they're still a scar and they still hurt now. Because the things that are said to us are powerful. The flip side to that as well, of course, is I bet all of you right now, if you think back, uh, maybe, maybe back to your childhood or maybe recently in life, you can think of things that were said to you, positive things, good things, things that built you up and strengthened you, and you still remember them now, and they still put a smile on your face. And they still give you strength because words are powerful things. They either hang like weights upon us and they stick like splinters in our minds and hearts. And it's hard for them to go away if they're negative things or they're things that put a smile on our face, maybe for the rest of our days, because they've, they've buoyed us, they've lifted us, they've strengthened us and encouraged us. James's subject, the Samuel was just reading about just now, is the tongue. Um, how do we define the tongue? Because that is literally the word that's used there, the, the thing in our mouths, the organ in our mouths. That's the word that James uses. Well, obviously, he's not just talking about the physical organ, the tongue. He's talking about speech, the things that we say. But also, uh, he's talking really about the impetus behind the things we say. Not just the words that come out of our mouths, but the reason the words come out of our mouths. So when he talks in a bit about the tongue controlling us and being a powerful thing, He's not just talking about the physical organ or the words that we say being powerful, but what lies behind those words being powerful. Do you remember that Jesus said these words himself? The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. That's what James is talking about here, that the words we say show what's in our hearts and how our minds work, because the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And the tongue has three things I think we see in this passage this morning. In honor of Jonathan Thomas, who's who's not here, I'm going to make it three Ps. Three Ps. Three things that the tongue has and the tongue does. The tongue has power. The tongue has potential. And I haven't used a bit of legal jargon for a while, so the third one is the tongue has probative force. I'll unpack that one when we get to it. Sammy's weeping quietly at the frontier. So it's power, potential, and probative force. The first one, and we've touched on this already, is the tongue. The things we say have power. Uh, And James here uses these wonderful word pictures, doesn't he? He does a very good job of it. He uses the picture of a horse 
being guided and being led along by the bit, the small bit in its mouth. The horse is a massive thing if you're up close to it, or some of them are anyway, and yet they can be guided by this little bit in their mouths. And he also uses the picture of a ship and a rudder. So some of us have been next to or been on ships, massive ships that are guided by a relatively small rudder, even in stormy seas. And this is the picture that these are some of the pictures James uses to describe the power of the tongue, the power of our words. Speech, you see, tends to have an impact out of proportion to other works. I think that's one of the things James is trying to say here. As we've been seeing as we've gone through James, James is saying faith without works is dead. Sammy talked about this last time. That if your faith is real, your faith in Jesus is real. Not a faith in inverted commas, but a real faith. Although we're not saved by our works, we are saved for good works. That good works will result if our faith is real, if our religion is real. And having talked about some of those works, he now talks about one work in particular, and that's the work of words. I find it really interesting that in terms of the people that James is writing to, it could have been a a large collection of churches he's writing to. He doesn't talk about sexual immorality. He doesn't talk about murder. He doesn't talk about physical violence. He talks instead about the attitude of the rich to the poor. He talks about wisdom, and he talks about how we use our tongues how we speak, particularly within the church, but this applies to what we say inside and outside of church, of course. And the word pictures he he uses here show how powerful the tongue is, even though it's small, and how speech tends to have an impact out of proportion to other works. People will remember the things that we say. The things that we say will stay with people, sometimes for the rest of their lives. And that's why James uses these images. And he also uses the image, doesn't he, of a spark and a forest. The idea that that tiny little spark can start a massive forest fire that's incredibly destructive. I was trying to think of of an up-to-date example because I don't suppose we struggle that much from forest fires in this part of the world, do we? Occasionally, not not so often. And I was reading just this week about something that happened on 6th of August, 1945. That date's familiar to anybody, any history buffs. 6th of August, 1945. 6th of August, 1945, Enola Gay flew over Hiroshima and dropped the very badly named, I think, little boy bomb. Uh, The little boy bomb was about 10 feet long and weighed about four tons, I think it was. But what struck me was that the uranium in it that caused the nuclear explosion, there was only 140 pounds of that. I can say it's about my weight is... I'm a bit more than that, about Sammy's weight, let's say. It's not an awful lot, 140 pounds of it. And by some estimates, that bomb killed 160,000 people and devastated a city. Just 140 pounds of it. There are all sorts of images we could multiply that would help us think about the point James is trying to make here, that the tongue is hard to tame because it is so very powerful. The words we say have huge impact. Whether for good or evil, the tongue is powerful. It sets us apart from the animals, doesn't it? The fact that we can speak, communicate in propositions, in words, and paint word pictures, it sets us apart from the animals. It's one of the ways we're made in God's image, surely, that we can communicate with words, and our words can be used in such a positive way, but only the human being can hurt through sounds that are tailored, through symbols and syllables, Only the human being can cause sounds that come out of its mouth to cause damage and pain and hurt. The tongue is powerful. 
So all the imagery that James is building up in this passage here is to make that first point, the tongue is a powerful thing. But also, going into more specifics, the tongue has great potential. And basically, the tongue has potential for either construction or destruction, for being constructive or destructive. What we say can either affirm people and build people up and strengthen people and strengthen relationships and churches, or it can be destructive and cause terrible trouble in relationships and people and churches. Um, There's one verse I particularly like. Proverbs is full of talk of the tongue and our words and how powerful they are. Proverbs 16, we read this, verse 24. Gracious words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. That's lovely, isn't it? That's what sweet words, positive words, especially from the mouth of a Christian can do. They're sweet and they're positive. And yet you go back just one chapter into Proverbs 15 and you read words like this. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise adorns knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. The soothing tongue is a tree of life, but a perverse tongue crushes the spirit. A perverse tongue crushes the spirit. I think probably all of us need to just pause for a second and repent. Because we've said things that have crushed people's spirits. Maybe deliberately, maybe recklessly, but we've done it. Our words have the potential to be constructive or to be destructive, to destroy and to break down. And the people that James starts with when he talks about this potential of the tongue are teachers. Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Why does he start with teachers? He's probably talking particularly about pastor teachers, those who teach the whole church, but probably not just those. As Christians in some capacity, we have the potential and the, uh, the opportunities to teach people, whether it's our friends, uh, new people who've come to faith, that who come around to our house for coffee, our children or children we know. We all have the opportunity to teach, but particularly those who stand up and preach, whether it's in this church or you visit other churches and preach. And James says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. I think teachers are in greater danger of judgment. Teachers are going to be scrutinized more closely because as leaders, they will be called to give an account. And also, probably, I think James is focusing on teachers here to start with, because if you think about it, a teacher's job, a preacher's job, by definition, is all about words. And therefore, they're putting themselves on the front line. And when I think about the fact that one day I will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, I'm meant to stand in the front row, as I did just now, before I get up the front, and tremble slightly as I think about these words, that those who teach will be judged more strictly, because words are powerful things, and to stand in front of believers and teach from the word of God is no light thing. The responsibility weighs heavier here than the privilege. It's a privilege to preach and to teach, but it is a great responsibility, and that's James's focus here. Teaching without prayer and without preparation and without pleading with God to help by the power of his spirit is a fearful thing. I'm mentioning this to start with because I'm saying to you, please consider and pray for your pastors. For me, for Sammy, for Jonathan. Pray for those people you know who preach the gospel and teach from scripture regularly. 
Because it is a fearful thing and a great responsibility. Because our words are powerful. But James doesn't just talk about teachers. He he then seems to talk about all of us, doesn't he? Because he then says, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able able to keep their whole body in check. He starts to talk about all of us now, other forms of speech, whether it's our conversation in the workplace or in church or other settings. Our conversation and the words we say, they're rarely neutral, are they? It's very difficult to say anything that's neutral and doesn't have any impact. Our words will always tend to have a positive impact in some way, constructive impact or a destructive impact in some way. And we all know that speech can have disastrous consequences. Because it doesn't take much. It only takes saying a few words in the right way and with the right inflection if you do it right and if you do it well to ruin someone's reputation. Or at least to damage it. It doesn't take a lot of work because the the tongue is such a powerful thing to say a few words in the right ear or in the right setting or in the right meeting to begin to destroy relationships and churches. Because don't we all know Can't we all think of examples of churches that have been damaged or split or maybe don't even exist anymore? And one of the reasons is words that professing believers have used. Either from the front or in conversation at the back over a cup of coffee. Speech can have disastrous consequences. Elsewhere, the New Testament, Paul, for example, talks about slander. And the thing about the Bible's definition of slander is that uh, it's a lot more exacting than the law of England and Wales. If I remember my law properly, is Jamie around? I can't, can't see him. No, no, ah, Jamie, the other Jamie who did law. Sorry, Jamie, wrong Jamie. But you might know, you might know, you can tell me after. From what I can remember, uh, with slander and liable, um, for that to be proved under the law of England and Wales, it needs to be untrue. That's one of the elements of slander. It's not the case in Scripture. When Scripture speaks of slander, you can be saying something that's perfectly true but it doesn't need to be said to the person you're saying it to in the way you're saying it. And slander damages churches and breaks relationships. I was reminded this week as I was chatting to somebody in church about a definition I'd heard before of um, slander, of gossip, sorry, of gossip, and also the definition of flattery. The definition of gossip is saying something behind someone's back that you wouldn't say to their face. Have we been guilty of that? On the flip side, flattery, which can be almost as dangerous, the definition of flattery is saying someone to someone's face, you wouldn't say behind their backs. I think the problem for us is that so often we're guilty of both. In the space of five minutes, we can do gossip and we can do flattery. We can gossip behind the person's back and say negative things you wouldn't say to their face. And five minutes later, we say positive things to their face we'd never say behind their back because we don't mean it. And James is speaking, don't forget, to people who profess to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sobering, isn't it? So it might be gossip and slander. It might be duplicity and dishonesty, saying one thing to one person, something completely different to another. It might be complaining about our circumstances. It might be moaning. It might just be being negative and being that dark cloud that comes into the room. Because of the way we use our words. Words and the way they are spoken either hurt or heal, either build up or they break down. They either encourage or discourage. And I need to ask as I'm preaching this, and you need to be asking as people who profess to follow Jesus Christ, what does my speech do? 
as I think of things I have said, maybe in the car on the way in today. Because, of course, the words that come out of our mouths when someone cuts us up in the car show what's in our hearts. And in my case, as I'm driving along in the car, I've got two children sat in the back hearing what I say. The words that we say have an impact. What does my speech do today, last week, last month, last year? And I think, by the way, as we think about that and do that sort of heart audit we've regularly got to do as we go through James, I think we've got to include in this, haven't we, written speech and typed speech and social media speech, any form of verbal or written communication, we've got to think, what do my words do? Because, of course, these days our words have so much more potential, don't they? You get to speak to dozens of people. I get to preach to you guys this morning. But all of us, if we're on social media, our words can be read by hundreds. What impact do my words have? How much brighter our light would be as Christians if we all took this on board? Don't you think? How much brighter our light would be? So James is saying, as he said, by the way, is anybody else, as we're going through this book of James, put your hands up, anybody else finding this hard? Ah, it's just me. Okay, I'm really worried now. Don't you find it? I, I think this should be the case, in a sense, as you read through James, that we should read a, ch- a chunk of it and we should think, man, man, that stings. Because James is saying to people who profess to be Christians, wise up. You're saying you follow Jesus Christ, but the way you're living isn't backing it up. Wise up. And he's saying to them here, wise up because the way you're speaking doesn't show what you say you believe. And here's my third and final point. The big point, I think, this morning is that, yes, our words are powerful and can damage or build up. Yes, they have potential to do these particular things I've just listed. But also, and here's where we get to the legal terminology, our words, James is saying here, I believe, have probative force. If I'm remembering the phrase right, I think it's used in English law as well, the law of England and Wales, not just American law. Probative force means that a piece, it talks about the, the how much weight there is behind a piece of evidence, a particular type of evidence. What will it prove and how much power does it have in proving things? That's what probative force means. And James is saying here that our words have probative force. With our tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness, verse 9. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives? I mean, obviously they're hearing this saying, well, of course not. Or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. And if they're hearing him right in context with everything he said so far, if we're hearing him right, what James is saying is, True religion, in other words, faith that's not faith in inverted commas, but real faith in Jesus that lives to a life lived a certain way, that is accompanied by good works, that faith is a doing faith that includes good works, and those good works include good words. That our words show the state of our hearts. Our words show where we're at spiritually. So this passage isn't first and foremost, isn't only about the smooth running of churches and good interpersonal relationships and how we get on together, though it is about that. But it is a, this passage is about how we use our speech showing where we're at spiritually. Verses 9 and 10 there, James is talking about inconsistency in speech. Cursing as well as blessing. He's saying to them, look, you're Christians, or you say you are, 
and yet with the same mouth you are blessing God in church and singing your worship songs, and next minute you're cursing people, and you're cursing people who who claim to follow Jesus Christ. You are using your words in a negative way against them or about them. What's going on? Surely he's saying to us, true believers, true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, will not consistently be the source of both cursing and blessing. James does say at the start of the passage, doesn't he? We all fail. We all fall. That's true. We've all done it as Christians, and we've maybe done it this week or even this day. James's point isn't for us to slip into condemnation. His point is for us to look at our lives and ask, is my life consistently characterized by words that bless rather than words that curse? Because it shows, the things I say show where I'm at spiritually. Just like you can't get figs from an olive tree or salt water from a fresh spring or vice versa. It just doesn't happen, does it? You go for a walk on a hot day and you're panting with thirst and you get to a spring and you stoop down and you scoop out a handful of delicious sweet water that satisfies your thirst. You know that's a sweet spring. You know you're not going to bend down and get the next mouthful and it's going to be salty and you're going to have to spit it out. It doesn't happen. James says, in in terms of people's lives and their spiritual lives, that should be the case. We shouldn't be characterized by this double-tonguedness. Earlier in James, he talks about double-mindedness and how it's a dangerous thing. And double-tonguedness is equally dangerous because it shows where our hearts are at. How we speak has probative force. It's evidence for where our hearts are at. And boy... Christians need to hear this and churches need to hear this sometimes, don't they? I need to hear this. I think it's also right to add, when we read verse 6, that this has something to say to the issue too. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil amongst the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James mentions hell there. What's he trying to say? Uh, A lot of commentators, the majority of commentators, seem to lean towards the idea that when he speaks of hell, he's saying that when people who profess to be Christians speak negatively and destructively, that that's been set on fire by hell in the sense that that's the devil having an influence on them. I think the words could mean that, but I think more likely what the words mean is this, that sinful speech deserves hell. Sinful speech, negative speech, deserves hell. Gehenna. That word Gehenna, hell, it's used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 times it's in the Gospels from the lips of Jesus. And it talks about the place of eternal punishment for those who do not bow the knee to Jesus Christ. And then one other occasion it's used, and it's here in James. Which is why I don't think this is about the tongue being set, set on fire by hell in the sense that it's demonic influence. So that could be part of the meaning. I think it's James focusing in on the fact that gossip and slander and destructive speech and negative use of the tongue is a sin that deserves hell. Uh, Matthew 5 verse 22 says this. Jesus says this. I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Isn't Jesus making the same point there? 
that negative and sinful speech is a sin and a rebellion against God that is deserving of hell. God created us, designed us to speak blessing and to bless his name and to worship him. And when we use our mouths for anything else, it is a sin deserving of of hell, just as every sin is a sin deserving of hell. Sinful speech is one of the things that separates us from God because it's the opposite of the pure praise that our God and Father created us for. And I think James is saying here, the punishment fits the crime. If someone's tongue, if someone's words spread fire in a church, in a relationship, in communities, then the punishment fits the crime because ultimately that tongue will be set on fire by hell. And so I think people who profess to be Christians at this point should be saying to themselves and reminding themselves as they analyze their words and their conversation and their Twitter feeds and the things they say in church, they should be reminding themselves that their words have probative force because they show where their hearts are at. And that when we speak negatively, that is something that is deserving of hell. And therefore, there are no such things as little respectable sins. Because haven't we done it in church here? I bet we've done it. Someone's up the front and they're preaching against sexual immorality. And you're there in the seat. Yes. Get him. Go on. Sock it to him. You tell him about sexual immorality. Go on, Matt. Stick it to him. And sexual immorality is sinful and is deserving of hell. Maybe it's adultery or maybe it's murder or maybe it's physical violence. Whatever he's been preached to get, we can often get behind that. And then when someone says that Christians, Christians, we shouldn't use negative words and we shouldn't gossip. Well, yeah, but I know it's wrong. It's, it's bad. I shouldn't really. But and we stick a but on the end of the sentence. James says, no, it deserves hell. And when you speak negatively, you need to examine your hearts. Again, I can't stress enough what's been stressed. I hope every time we've preached on this. No one has hope of heaven unless they're trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation and they put their faith in him. And we're saved. Yes, we are saved. We are justified. We are forgiven by faith alone in him. Not by anything we can do. It's all about what he's done. We've got to stress that. We've got to stress that we're not saying to people who truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ that if they fall into gossip, if they say bad words, then they've lost their salvation and they go into hell. No, that's not what we're saying. That's not what James is saying. But James is saying to people who profess to be believers, if your life is consistently not characterized by those things that should flow from a redeemed heart, from a born-again heart, you need to be asking yourself the question, do you truly have faith? You see, he's saying it to them. It's hard. He's saying, wise up. He's being harsh again, isn't he? But he's saying it because he loves them. And I'm saying it because I love you. And I hope you love me. But you need to look at and think about the words you say. And so do I. Because if they're consistently negative and evil, that seems to be probative evidence showing that I don't really belong to Jesus. I need to flee to him and ask for him for mercy. Our words show where we're at. They have probative force. But I have to finish with that power word that we started with. We said that our words have power, our words have potential, our words have probative force. I have to finish with power because I think we're meant to feel the sting of what James says here. We're meant to feel it when he says, wise up and look at how you're living. We're meant to consider the potential of our words. But we started with power and I want to finish with power because there is a power greater than the power of the tongue. 
No human being, James says in verse 8, can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil, full of deadly poison. So where does the hope come in? The hope comes in because God's power comes in. Because if you trust in Jesus, if you have fled to him for mercy, if you're trusting in him now and the Holy Spirit dwells in your heart, that's where the power lies to use the tongue for good and to not use it for evil. You know, the the fact that we're unable to control our tongues by nature, which is what James goes on about in this passage, implies that we need to look outside humanity because human beings can't control their tongues. We look outside humanity for help in taming the tongue. And while no one of us as a human being can subdue our speech, God can control it for us when we trust in Christ and surrender to him. God can do it. So if you are here this morning and you know you trust Jesus and you know you've consistently fallen in this area and you're feeling beaten up about this, well, praise God for it because he's convicting you and speaking to you. But praise God too because there is hope and there is strength and there is power to be had, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is more powerful than our tongues. And when we cry out for mercy, he will help us. Will we put our speech along with the rest of our beings under God's control and God's sway and by doing so show that we are truly belonging to Jesus. I'll close with these words of scripture from Psalm 141, where the psalmist prays, Lord, set a guard over my mouth, Lord, and keep watch over the door of my lips.